0: Hi, I'm Mark, the Membership Sales Manager here at the Geographical Association. Just before we get into this week's episode of JOGPOD, I'd like to encourage you to consider joining us. JOGPOD is produced by the Geographical Association. There are many reasons to be a member of the GA, the association for all teachers of geography. Not only do you receive our professional journals each term, but you also get access to great quality resources, lesson planning ideas, and a huge archive dating back to 1901 but there's also help with the new education inspection framework and curriculum planning, alongside discounts on books, maps and classroom tools. I hope you will consider joining the GA and adding your voice to ours as the voice of geography in education. Please visit our website, geography.org.uk, to join today. Now, I hope you enjoy this week's episode of Jogpod.
1: Welcome to JobPod. it's the Geographical Association podcast series and today I'm talking to Professor Peter Jackson who's co-director of the University of Sheffield Institute for Sustainable Foods. I have to say Peter, I went to Sheffield University in 1973, probably at the height of the quantitative revolution I think and it it was a revolution for me in terms of understanding geography. I think I'd come from a, a regional geography background with A level, and suddenly we were talking about empirical geography and abstract models and nested hexagons and uh, Cristala, Lersh, and Weber models, central place models. And I really didn't enjoy my time of that element of geography. I, I couldn't see where it addressed issues of poverty inequality, environment. This positivist approach just really didn't excite me. And then I look at your research interests, the the social and cultural geography, the consumption identity of families and food, the work that you and others are doing at the Institute for Sustainable Food. And it's just such exciting work. I had a look at the vision on the Institute for Sustainable Food website Um, and and it talks about the world is fast approaching the limit of its ability to feed itself, which sounds really all quite depressing. And you say it's one of the most significant threats facing humanity, but then you go on to say it's a problem we can solve and that the Institute's committed to overcoming this challenge. Uh, And it's overcoming that challenge is one of the most exciting uh, but huge challenges we face. One in nine people going to bed hungry tonight, one in three people experience some form of malnutrition, and each year 24 billion tonnes of fertile soil lost to erosion. So food security is a growing problem, but you've said as much as a social problem, it's a technical problem, and you can't solve this with just technology alone. So what do you mean by that? Just tell us a bit about how that works.
2: Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, I think, first of all, food is a really good topic for us all to engage with because it's one of the most immediate ways in which we engage with the natural world, whether we eat plants or uh, animal-based foods. It connects us automatically. So everyone engages with food several times a day. Everyone has a view on it. Um, And it's true at that very personal and bodily level, but it's also, as you've just said, a really big global challenge. And that makes it a perfect topic for geographers to engage with, because it deals with social issues, it deals with the natural environment, it deals with uh, the politics of the way in which food is distributed around the world. So I think that's probably why food is something that would engage you if you went back to university now, in a way that perhaps some of those abstract models and quantitative ways of thinking about geography uh, didn't didn't work for you. Um, So yes, food is definitely a really significant global challenge. Uh, The population is increasing rapidly. We'll have to feed around 10 billion people uh, by 2050. So within a generation, the population will have increased from 7.7 billion to around 10 billion. The amount of agricultural land from which to feed them is certainly not going to expand. It's probably going to contract because of urbanisation, because of the impact of the climate crisis. So there is a mismatch between population and resources, which is a massive challenge. And there is a danger, as you say, that that becomes the kind of issue that we can't deal with. Uh, it's, it's beyond hum- humanity's uh, uh, capacity to react. But I think by engaging a kind of geographical view of the world, the connections between the global north and the global south, between the, those who are overfed, mainly in the global north, and those who are malnourished, mainly in the global south, we can start to reconnect a system which has become quite disconnected, and we can start to think quite positively about addressing the challenges of global food insecurity, which might at first sight seem completely insuperable.
1: I was reading on the website about how you've been looking at growing plants without soil, which is interesting given that we're losing 24 billion tonnes of fertile soil.
2: How does that work? Um, I think you're referring to the work which is sometimes talked about as the desert garden project or sometimes talked about in terms of urban farming. So yes, some of the people I work with um, in plant science at the University of Sheffield in our Institute for Sustainable Food are interested in using uh, growth media other than soil. So for example, in the Zatari refugee camp in Jordan, uh, people have been using uh, a, a supply of old mattresses they found Uh, to grow plants uh, not in soil but in an artificial growth medium and they can do that in a way which is uh, more efficient in terms of the inputs that go into it whether that's uh, water or energy from the sun and they can grow plants um, uh, like mint for tea or salad greens or tomatoes or even aubergines uh, that feed populations in a refugee camp where they're literally not allowed to put roots down. They're not allowed to grow food in the soil. So suddenly a very barren desert landscape uh, becomes something where people can grow food. And that's uh, fantastic in terms of the kind of people's cultural attachment to food. Many of the people in those refugee camps were were farmers beforehand. Um, and they can now grow food again, and the desert literally turns green in the small urban plots, the urban gardens they grow. So that's a really nice example of a kind of agro-tech solution uh, to an issue uh, which also deals with a kind of socio-economic environment of uh, poverty and and deprivation. So some of those urban farming kind of uh, techniques That are used there. Uh, uh, And the other nice thing about the Zatari refugee camp is it's been so successful that the United Nations High Commission for Refugees is now rolling that program out to other refugee camps in the region. So it's something that started very small in one refugee camp with some scientists visiting from the University of Sheffield and has now become quite a major uh, contribution to uh, issues of deprivation in refugee camps, certainly around that region and potentially more widely. I wonder if you Google that, you'd find there the are news articles, aren't there, on this? There's a lot about it. Yeah, if you just if you just Google uh, "desert garden," you'll find it. The works led by Tony Ryan, who's a professor of chemistry and who runs our Grantham Centre for Sustainable Futures, and yes, it got a lot of publicity a couple of weeks ago, and there is a, a, a fundraising campaign around it now. So it's a, yeah, it's a, a quite simple, ingenious technological solution which has all sorts of nice social and cultural ramifications. And it's not something that only works at that global scale in the Global South. We're also doing similar things on the edge of cities uh, here in the UK. So in Tinsley, one of the poorest neighbourhoods in Sheffield, uh, we've taken over an old school, or an old classroom in an old school, and, and are growing uh, salad greens and and veg in a hydroponic system, uh, which uh, we hope will address uh Some of the uh, needs of people in quite poorer parts of the city, some of which people talk about as um, food deserts where it's quite hard to get fruit and veg uh, that's uh, a regular source of it at affordable prices. So it's a really nice, again, a nice geography example of something that works at a very local scale, but also works globally, internationally, in the global north and in the global south.
1: And there is a, a just giving website, isn't there?
2: There is, yeah. We'll provide a link to that, I
1: think, along with this programme. Can we produce all our own food? Is that, a, is that possible in, in the UK?
2: Yeah, okay. Well, let me, let me start internationally, first of all, because one of the questions is with food insecurity, a lack of affordable, uh, sustainable, healthy food for all, people think there's not enough food grown in the world. There probably is if it were distributed in a fair way. So although there are a large number of people who are undernourished, there are also people mainly in the, in the global north who are overweight or obese. But it's a question, again, a geographical question about distribution, about patterns, about accessibility. So that will be true on a global scale. But you were asking about the UK, um, and certainly at the moment the UK is not self-sufficient in food. So we eat lots of imported food. If you want to eat If you want to drink coffee, if you want to eat bananas, we're unlikely to be able to grow those in the UK. So our diets at the moment are heavily um, dependent on imported food. Presently, a lot of it from the EU, Well, that may be challenged by uh, what happens with Brexit. Um, So there's a question about should the UK be more self-sufficient, and some people would argue that. My view would be that self-sufficiency is not the same as food security for the UK, you could have food security in the UK as long as international trade is well regulated. So we could continue to import bananas from Costa Rica or the Dominican Republic, we could continue to import coffee let's say, um, but what's important about that is that the trade is well regulated and is equitable for all the partners involved rather than each country sort of shrinking back on its own resources in terms of what it can grow becomes what it can eat. Mm-hmm.
1: So what political or environmental circumstances then might threaten our food security?
2: Okay, well the immediate one that people are worrying about at the moment is Brexit. And we currently have left the EU, but we're still in a transition phase until December 2020. And one of the kind of test cases of how Brexit will work for the UK is about food and agriculture. So there is a battle, I think it's not unfair to say, going on within government as to whether we maintain high standards of animal welfare, uh, food safety, quality, and so on, if we maintain those standards, or if we are prepared to sacrifice those standards in order to get uh, the kind of trade deals that people want. So there's a a balance between a trade deal which is uh, quick and easy to resolve and a trade deal which still protects the quality and safety of food. And that debate has been going on for a while now. And issues like chlorinated chicken, importing uh, chicken from the US, which has different food standards from in the UK and within the EU, is one of the litmus test cases around which uh, the kind of trade deal we strike as we leave the European Union has become to sort of uh, crystallise, to focus on. That's just one example. Mm-hmm. But uh, clearly the EU has a set of standards environmental standards, food safety standards, which until recently the UK has been signed up to. And now the debate becomes, do we let that roll forward more or less as it is? Or are we prepared to sacrifice some of that in order to get um, a trade deal with the US or with other partners outside the EU? Mm. I
1: looked up this question on, uh, can the UK feed itself after Brexit? And uh, no was... Mary Grayman, the president of the NFU, we will never be self-sufficient in food production in the UK, he said. The population's rising. There's a huge demand for crops that can't be grown here, which is what you said with bananas and the like. Um, society's grown used to so much m- being available all year round. He said we can increase self-sufficiently, but we can't feed ourselves. And then I looked at Professor Tim Lang, who says, yes, we can feed ourselves. And he says, but it depends on what we eat. We'll have to cut eating meat down to once a week, rebuild horticulture, and put more money into primary food production. So he talks about a shift in how we grow food. So where would you sit in, in that argument with, between the yes and the no?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, we could become self-sufficient in food, but in my view, that's unlikely, partly because of the embedded nature of, of the diets we eat. So I think it's unlikely that everyone will switch in the near future to uh, the kind of uh, crops and food and drink that we can grow easily in the UK, which is why I maintain that we need to have a well-regulated system of international trade in food. But Tim Lang is right. Uh, The world as a whole cannot continue to eat uh, large amounts of red meat, uh, dairy products, and other foods which require large amounts of energy inputs and water and other inputs. So there was a big report by the Eat Lancet Commission last year, 2019, which talked about the kind of diet we'd need to eat across the world if we're to meet the growing demand uh, of 10 million people by 2050. And the Eat Lancet report concluded that we would need across the world, not just in the UK, to reduce meat consumption, uh, milk, cheese and other dairy products. And we would need to eat more fruit, vegetables, uh, pulses and less processed uh, uh, grain. And that's a huge shift in diets and is not easy to uh, see that happening in the short run but it's not just a question of kind of consumer preference and taste to produce that change in diets has huge ramifications throughout the food system from farming from distribution from international trade it would have beneficial health uh, uh, implications but at the moment the uk could not grow or is is not growing enough fruit and veg for us to to make that transition so i'm absolutely clear that a shift in consumption patterns towards uh, less energy-dense foods will be required within the next generation. Uh, It'll have big ramifications for the food system, and it will necessitate changes in what people regard as their normal diet. And I think that will push for a more local, more seasonal, more sustainable diet, rather than the kind of a default position at the moment that we go into the supermarket on a Saturday morning and expect to be able to eat you know raspberries all year round uh, bananas all year whatever that, that our diets at the moment are based around uh, convenience and year-round accessibility of a whole range of crops and that's part of what's not sustainable about our current food system. How far is the UK different from continental Europe? Quite often when
1: when I go abroad I'm, I'm surprised at uh, the, uh, the, the the seasonality, there appears to be more seasonality in European supermarkets. Yep. You can get much more choice in UK supermarkets. From my perspective, I'm not sure that's just a personal.
2: Yeah, uh, I think you're right. There are quite big differences between the UK and the rest of Europe. Uh, one would be the degree of retail concentration, which is a fancy way of saying the number of supermarkets that provide our food. So in the UK we have one of the most concentrated sectors where about well at least 70% probably nearer 80% of our food comes from the four main supermarkets. That gives them huge buying power in their negotiations with farmers for example but it also means we're very dependent on a very small number of players. So power is very concentrated in the UK in a way it's less so throughout the rest of Europe. So that's one uh, one big difference. Another big difference between the UK and the rest of Europe is the uh, proportion of our budget we spend on food. And in the UK, we spend a, a lower proportion of our our budgets on food than most of the rest of Europe. And that arguably is because we've got used to supermarkets providing cheap, often processed food uh, that is less common elsewhere in Europe. These are all matters of degree they're not vast differences between countries but I think it's true that the UK has a higher reliance on uh, supermarket ready meals for example or highly processed foods in a way that, that will be less true elsewhere. So if you go to France or Spain the whole pattern of dining in families, cooking food with fresh vegetable, fresh ingredients from scratch is different from in the UK, which has a much more low-cost, highly con- uh, high-convenience processed food kind of diet, and that's become it's what we become accustomed to. People want food to be uh, affordable, um, and they're less, I think, invested in food quality and other kind of culinary issues of, of taste, for example. Than elsewhere in Europe,
1: mm-hmm. so it's an educational job, really. I suppose moving people, perhaps, back away from that model.
2: Yes, I, I, I'm. I'm ambivalent about that. There's certainly an argument which says that education is important, and that we've become more distanced from where, as we become more urban, we've come more distant from where our food is grown uh, and how it's produced. Uh, there's an argument that says that children have as they grow up know less about how to cook healthy balanced food from raw ingredients so there's definitely a, 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 and there's an argument about educating people about the benefits of five fruit and vegetables a day and so on so certainly working in university like I do I'd be the last person to say education wasn't important but one of the implications of that argument is it's down to consumers to fix the food system Rather than thinking about the wider environment in which our choices, our dietary choices are are shaped. So, most of us know what a balanced diet is. Most of us know that it's harmful to eat too much uh, fast food. So, it's not just a question of educating people, giving them the skills to cook, and so on. It's also thinking about what shapes people's dietary choices and there you're out into the bigger picture of the retail environment. You're into what food is available, particularly in the poorer parts of the country, where you might be able to easily get fried chicken, uh, but you probably haven't got a choice of supermarkets that offer lots of fruit and vegetables at affordable prices. Uh, You've got an advertising industry which spends a lot on selling Sugar sweetened drinks uh, and uh, all sorts of foods that we know aren't healthy for us. So yes, education is important, but it's definitely not just the onus on individual consumers to eat healthily. It's also thinking about the whole food environment in which we're uh, in which we sit. So would you suggest
1: that there's there's uh, there should be more political um, management? should I put it that way, that there should be political decisions made about our our food chains and what we eat, Uh, rather than leaving it to to consumer choice.
2: Yeah, Um, I I think responsibility for change towards a more healthy and sustainable food system is quite uh, distributed. So consumers definitely have some responsibilities about what they eat and how we uh, bring up our kids, for example. Uh, but the food industry has its part to play um, and mostly it will be driven by profit because they're corporations, they're businesses, that's what their job is. So that does mean there is then onus on government as well to act. So we've seen governments act around uh, tobacco for example and made uh, tobacco much more expensive, much less, uh, more controls and advertising. We've seen that a bit in relation to advertising of so-called junk food to children. So there are now watersheds about when you can and can't uh, advertise food to children. And we've seen it with the um, uh, tax on on sugar, particularly on sugar-sweetened drinks. So government is prepared to act when put under pressure by us as consumers or us as citizens and voters. But there is a balance, I think, between what's the government responsibility, what's the commercial responsibility, the role of NGOs to put pressure on governments and so on, and then us as citizens and and consumers. So I've just done a a report for the uh, European Commission about a healthy and sustainable food system, and we reviewed a lot of evidence, and the conclusion of that review was a balance between so-called hard and soft measures, is better than one or the other on their own. Mm. So the hard measures would include things like the sugar tax, or legislation and standards that have to be met around food safety, for example. So the hard measures are at one end, and the other end are the so-called softer measures, which might be uh, some behavior change initiatives, educational campaigns, uh, uh, and so on. But it's, it's the mix of the two. Relying on behavior change at an individual consumer level has been shown not to be effective on its own unless it's combined with the so-called harder fiscal measures.
1: Are you concerned with Brexit that some of those uh, controls might be relaxed?
2: Uh, Yes, and I think that's a debate which is going on at the moment. Tim Lang, who you mentioned before, has a really good series of Brexit briefings around food. So Tim works at the Centre for Food Policy at City University in London. And I think he's produced a range of really good, authoritative reports about the likely impacts of Brexit on food quality and standards. But that's absolutely a live issue at the moment. So I was involved uh, this weekend in a a public dialogue, which was part of the National Food Strategy. So for the first time since the Second World War, uh, there is a National Food Strategy in discussion. I think it's a fantastic opportunity because it doesn't just include the farming industry. It is led by DEFRA, but it talks about international trade, it talks about food standards and so on. It's taken evidence from a range of sources, including this series of public dialogues that I was involved in at the weekend, where they're engaging with uh, groups uh, from uh, representative groups of the public in five different towns uh, across England, asking people about their values around food and particularly how they would resolve some of the trickier issues the compromises and the trade-offs we might be involved in and that could be anything from uh, quality versus cost it could be where there are health benefits versus environmental costs a whole series of things so an example i like to give is that um uh, for breakfast this morning i put some blueberries on my muesli and thought I've done a good job there. Really healthy option, you know, great, great choice. And then I look at the pack, and it's um, it's in plastic packaging, and they're imported from Chile. So even what looks like a healthy option, good choice here, has implications for environment. And that's just a microcosm of a whole series of issues, where there are trade offs to be made uh, between potentially good things that are offset against potentially harmful consequences. So the national food strategy is is trying to engage not just with a sort of bland, we all need to eat a healthier, more sustainable diet, but with asking citizens, members of the public, where they sit in relation to some of those difficult choices.
1: You've got me thinking now because I made some Kranachan
2: last week and I had blueberries
1: and I also took up some raspberries. I should have looked to see where either of them came from, but the blueberries lasted... I had two packets of raspberries, two packets of blueberries, because I was making for 12. The raspberries had gone off.
2: Well, uh, there's a really nice uh, connection there to food waste, because that's a really tricky issue and a really important one. Uh, given that balance between population resources, one of the apparently easy things to do will be to reduce the amount of food waste. So about a third of food that's produced doesn't make it into uh, consumption, into meals that people eat. And that happens at all stages along the food supply chain, from farms themselves and the specifications that supermarkets might give them to food running beyond its, its its use-by date, either on the shelf in the supermarket or in our homes. And as I say, it's one of those deceptively simple things that we think if we could just reduce food waste, we'd make a big difference in relation to food security. But again, there are trade-offs in there. I mentioned that my blueberries came in a plastic package, so you think, oh, that's terrible, a waste of single-use plastics, we should get rid of that. On the other hand, if the plastic packaging means that they last a bit longer in my fridge and they're less likely to be wasted, there's some possible benefits to using packaging uh, that means we don't simply just say, in all cases, plastics are a terrible thing. So theres I think the example of... of Why is it that your raspberries ran out and your blueberries didn't or didn't quite so quickly? It's quite a complicated question. It's partly, you know, should we be eating raspberries when they're not uh, growing in the fields just down the road so that they need to be packaged and transported and refrigerated? You could just take the decision not to eat them out of season. Uh, If you do have them, uh, we could educate ourselves a bit more about best before and use by dates and how to um, keep them as long as we can. We could think about cooking in bulk, in batch cooking and freezing. There's all sorts of uh, elements to what looks like a I shouldn't buy them because they're wasteful. Uh, Often these issues are more complex than we initially think.
1: The geographer's dilemma. David Lambert used to talk about making... Decisions with confident and certainty. (laughs) Yeah. And as new information comes on, we might change our minds.
2: Well, there are are many examples of that kind of thing uh, about, uh, I want to eat uh, sustainable food. I want to eat organic food, but not organic. We don't grow enough organic food in the UK to meet demand, so we import it. Are we we then trading off a different kind of environmental cost in terms of... uh, transportation, refrigeration from halfway around the world in order to provide the food we want. There are many examples of those kind of trade-offs that become political and ethical questions too, particularly if food's being grown uh, overseas, uh, uh, we're not sure where our food comes from or how it's been produced. So the whole ethical consumption, fair trade movement arose to sort of fill that uh, void and try and make uh, the... Our responsibility to what sometimes called distant strangers, clearer to us, to give us options where the so-called middlemen is is uh, their role is reduced. So yeah, it's the geographer's dilemma is a really I mean, food absolutely is a classic geographical question. It's society and environment. It's global north and global south. It's questions of scale. It's questions of seasonality. Even the emphasis on local can be a bit of a trap. If we, if we eat local tomatoes but grown in a heated polytunnel that might have more energy costs associated with it than if we import our tomatoes from El Maria or somewhere else in Spain grown under the sunshine, you have to do quite a complicated life cycle assessment to work out what is the best, least damaging environmental uh, 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 way of consuming those particular fruits or vegetables. And most consumers, most of the time, don't have the uh, knowledge to do that, don't have the resources to do that. We're in a supermarket, we've got the kids in tow, we're making quick decisions. And that then raises all sorts of questions about how we should uh, label and market food in order to make those issues as transparent as we can. There was an article on your page on the university website,
1: um, and I was fascinated by it, it's called Fresh is Best, Ah. New Perspectives on Sustainable Food Systems. By law, food on sale must be safe, but no law can be used for fresh, I read. So I just thought I'd talk to you. It it says the article talks about freshness having multiple realities. So you've talked a little bit about that, but just explain a little bit more about these multiple realities for freshness.
2: Okay, I'll try. Uh, So that was a project uh, which I did with colleagues in Portugal, And we chose to do a UK-Portuguese comparison uh, because of the issues we were talking about before about how food has different kind of value and meaning in different parts of Europe. So in Portugal, for example, there's a huge emphasis on fresh fish um, and on um, roca pears and other um, fruits and veg. And so we thought we'd compare that with the UK, which has different uh, culinary values perhaps than Portugal. And one of the things we looked at was the way in which words like fresh or natural or pure are used in relation to fruits and veg, where it's not immediately obvious what those words mean. So if you think about the word fresh in English, it could mean it's fresh, it's not frozen. So fresh chicken compared to frozen chicken. Fresh could also mean it was very recently harvested or recently grown or the fish was very recently landed. Fresh also becomes a kind of marketing term that stands in for high quality, tasty, not processed. So as soon as you start to scratch the surface of a word (laughs) like fresh or pure or natural, especially in the kind of highly industrialized food system we have, we start to think that's a bit of an odd word to use, isn't it? But it's a good word to use for marketing and advertising because it has all of those implications kind of uh, attached to it. So we used the example of bananas before, uh, the best-selling item in supermarkets in the UK. Everyone likes fresh bananas. Those bananas were probably grown somewhere in South or Central America. They were then shipped in uh, refrigerated containers uh, from there to the UK. They then made their way to a a ripening centre, probably somewhere on the M1, like Luton or somewhere like that, where they're kept... Uh, uh, in refrigerated compartments, store as big as an IKEA store, and then they're woken up and ripened in order to get them on the shelves with enough shelf life left for us to consume. So, our fresh banana has been transported halfway around the world, it's been refrigerated, it's been treated with chemicals like ethylene in order to wake it up and ripen it again, and so on. And maybe we keep it in a refrigerator or on our, on our, in a fruit bowl at home for those last few days before we consume it. So something that appears to be fresh has actually gone through a whole series of processes that are anything but sort of fresh and natural in the way we might immediately think about them. So people like the Food Standards Agency have looked at words like uh, fresh, natural, pure, uh, uh, farm fresh, homemade, home baked, and they've decided it's impossible to legislate for them because they have this sort of multiple set of meanings attached to them. So I'll have regulations about particular ingredients or about uh, chemical additives or whatever, but those kind of marketing words that we kind of see all the time and scarcely think about are really hard to, to legislate for. And that's why advertising and marketing loves them because they have all kinds of cultural connotations that appeal to us without us thinking perhaps too much about uh, what a fresh banana really means. <laughs> I
1: really like the idea of bananas being woken up. Uh, at, on the site, it talks about yep. the ripening process is controlled by workers using a bank of computers yep. and specialised software. Yep. Um, and we were, freshness uh, it's fa- is induced.
2: <laughs> it's, it, yep. it's, it's fascinating. Yep. Well, the, the other example we have that's a really good one, I think, is in Portugal, uh, people eat a lot of um, uh, salt cod. So bacalao is a kind of um, you know, national dish in Portugal, and that's fish that's freshly caught. It's then salted to preserve it, and then when you want to eat bacalao, you uh, uh, use you you hydrate it. You put lots of water in to get rid of the salt. It then becomes fresh again, so you can cook it. So something again that's a fresh cod dish, national dish of Portugal, has actually been through that process of preserving. And then, again, almost like reawakening, a bit like the banana we talked about. And people wouldn't say that the bacalao dish wasn't fresh, but it's not fresh in the sense that you have a fish straight from the sea, it's cooked in a restaurant, you know, in the Algarve or whatever, and you eat it within 24 hours of it being cooked. It's not like that. So there are lots of dishes that we think of, where that's why we did this project on freshness because it's a word that lends itself to all of these subtleties and quite complex processes. It's interesting talking about Portugal
1: and talking about um, what we eat and what they eat and how it differs. I was once in, in Scotland and I was the, the pair of us tried to buy something off one of the boats as it came in and it was already all sold and it was going to be shipped straight off to Spain and Portugal so we couldn't buy anything off the boat yeah uh, and they said that the market is there because people in England in Scotland uh, didn't really eat that sort of shellfish that they were pulling off in quantities like they do in Spain and
0: Portugal
2: yeah so that's absolutely right there are different um, tastes for different kinds of food so some food where you'd think uh, you could Uh, it could be fished just off the coast of Scotland, it could then be consumed in urban areas of Glasgow or whatever, Uh, might not happen. That food is quite likely to be exported to other countries that value different cuts of meat or different kinds of fish. So again, that simple equation between if we just get back to more local food isn't quite as simple as that because, yeah, tastes vary, markets intervene in different ways, uh, a fancy restaurant somewhere else can afford to pay more than a local consumer. It might be economies of scale. They're selling it to a supermarket buyer uh, makes more sense to the f- people doing the fishing than hoping for a few tourists to come along wanting to buy some whatever it is that you are trying to buy when you're in Scotland. So yeah, I, th- I think again there's a there's a kind of knee-jerk reaction from us as geographers to think that local. Uh, must be best, reduce the so-called food miles and everything will be fine. Uh, I, I think uh, there are a lot more issues involved in that. Another really good example being be in 2013, there was a so-called horse meat scandal in the UK, you probably remember that, and mm. elsewhere in, in Europe. One of the things that emerged from that is that, well, the horse meat was being substituted because it was much cheaper than beef, that was one thing, there was a kind of economic imperative for it. Uh, but if you remember, supermarkets like Tesco took out full-page adverts to say uh, that they'd let the consumer down, that their supply chain had not been as transparent or as trustworthy as it should be, and there were some maps that were produced that showed where uh, imports of those products had come from. And one map showed where the actual horse meat had travelled from, so maybe from a, an abattoir in Romania, to a, a French uh, food processor to the UK, a quite simple supply chain, but then there was another map alongside it which was all of the trade that had gone on in terms of phone calls and uh, emails and so on. between different. And that map linked up, I don't know what, 10 or 12 different countries across Europe. And Tesco's argument was that uh, it wasn't its fault uh, that, uh, uh, be, that horse meat had been substituted for beef It was a a supply chain which had got kind of out of control and been stretched across distances and across different parts of Europe, different places that might have different food standards, for example. So as food supply chains become stretched, they become harder to control by a retailer, but also, if you think about it, by national legislation as well. So even in the UK, food is regulated. Or the governance of food involves DEFRA, it involves the Food Standards Agency, it involves local uh, government, environmental inspectors. Uh, There are issues around uh, industry and trade, uh, and so on. The England has different uh, legislation than Scotland, for example. Uh, Much of the legislation is handed down has been until recently from Brussels. Uh, so there's a European dimension. There are national governments. There are local governments. So the, the the regulation of food is a really complex landscape of different kinds of authorities involved, which sometimes have competing interests. So something like the the horse meat scandal was a sort of once-off occurrence, uh, but it's very it's increasingly likely that events like that happen in circumstances where supply chains are so become so complex and so stretched out geographically.
1: It is interesting as well that we'll eat sheep and we'll nice. eat pigs yeah. and we'll eat horses, Oh, sorry, deer, and we'll eat cows, but it's abhorrent to eat a horse. Yep. And then we'll eat prawns, but we don't particularly fancy the idea at the moment of eating
2: insects, locusts. Yep. Okay, well that's certainly true that um, horse is regularly eaten in uh, Italy and in France but not in the UK. So again, there are those kind of cultural variations in terms of what we regard as what's edible, what's food. Um, And in the horse meat scandal, the question was not really whether people were going to get ill through eating horse meat rather than beef or lamb. It was that they didn't want to be uh, misled by, uh, if it says beef on the label, it should be beef, it shouldn't be horse meat. So that wasn't really about uh, a food safety question or even really a a question of eating something that we didn't like the taste of. It was much more about transparency, not being misled, about a trust issue between consumers and supermarkets. Uh, but but the, the, the wider question you raise is a really interesting one about why we eat certain sorts of things and not others. I did a project years ago about chicken, and it was really interesting that consumers were really concerned for their Sunday lunch about the provenance of the chicken, They wanted it to be British chicken, but they were much less concerned when they were eating, uh, let's say, chicken nuggets, for example, where it's very likely that the chicken in those dishes was imported from uh, Thailand or from Brazil, and the the provenance was much less of an issue. The provenance issue there was about, this is a Thai, for Thai cooking, for Thai meals, is quite different from in a chicken nugget where it happens to come from somewhere else, Mm -hmm. and it's dissociated from the animal Uh, with which it was um, originally um, uh, connected. So all of that, and you mentioned insects as well, that's a great example, because one of the arguments around food insecurity at a global scale, one of the suggestions is we move away from uh, meat to other forms of protein, and insects are clearly part of the diet in places like Mexico, for example. Chapulines are regarded quite highly as as a highly nutritious and tasty thing to eat. Uh, insects are now being grown commercially as human food not just for animal feed so in the Netherlands uh, supermarkets sell uh, uh, things like burgers and um, uh, uh, mincemeat and so on with um, uh, locusts or mealworms or other kinds of insects the the immediate kind of reaction from British consumers is a sort of yuck factor that you know that's not that's disgusting that's not something we'd eat But I had a PhD student who looked at the insect consumption in the Netherlands and their people quickly got over that yuck factor thing. And the reasons they didn't become really popular were much more to do with uh, cost. They were more expensive than meat alternatives. Uh, Taste, they didn't taste as nice as people thought um, their beef burger did. And simply availability, they just weren't available in the store in the same way that that meat-based things were. And, and and it went on from there as well. Where in the store did people uh, place them? Did they place them with the vegetarian meals, or with a kind of green sustainability question, or did they put them with the with the burgers or with the mincemeat? meat? Um, and then how did they fit into people's diets? So uh, uh, crickets in in some countries are part of a regular kind of meal, or chappalines in Mexico. But actually thinking how you'd fit insect-based foods into the kind of meat and two-veg diet we have here or they had in the Netherlands, there were all sorts of other social, cultural reasons as to why insect-based foods would take a lot of uh, effort to become more mainstream, rather than just a kind of consumer psychology of, "oh, people like us don't eat insects.
1: That's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. That's it. I want to go back to... uh, to university again (laughs) Uh, and not uh, go through the quantitative revolution but listen to you lecturing i could listen to that all day thanks everyone for joining us on job pod and next week i'll be talking to daniel hammett from sheffield university